I knew nothing about this, like how this worked. (laughs) Now you I didn't realize how much of engineering is really just like, well, we could blow it up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) We just want to blow it up at the right time and the right amount. Just Just a a tiny little explosion near this massive natural gas reservoir. Just (laughs) (laughs) That'll be fine. It's it's fine. (laughs) I'm Paige. And I'm Megan. And this is Spooky Science Sisters. Hello, you're listening to Spooky Science Sisters, a podcast where we present to you a science-based and probably very giggly discussion on all things strange and unusual. Today, we are joined by Taylor and Tanner, the hosts of the podcast Beyond the Breakers, which they describe as a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. And you might think that that means that we are going to talk about some spooky ships or ghost ships, but surprise, we are going rogue (laughs) with a terrifying industrial and ecological disaster, and that is the Deepwater Horizon explosion and oil spill. Because, I don't know, Paige and I see big explosions and we think, That is just scary, so we can talk about it. Time to talk about it. (laughs) Time to talk about it. But before we get into that, Taylor and Tanner, can you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your show? Uh, Yeah, sure. Uh, This is Taylor speaking right now. Um, What have we been doing it for now? Hi, Taylor. (laughs) Hi. We've been doing this now for, what, a year and a half, two years, Tanner? Uh, Almost exactly two years. Almost exactly two. Yeah, it was just an idea that we kind of thought up and... I couldn't find any podcasts about shipwrecks, and we were kind of dabbling with the podcast idea. It was in the middle of COVID. We had a lot of free time, and we decided to give it a go, <laughs> probably like a lot of other podcasts, like how, how they got started recently. <laughs> Same. <laughs> and it's just kind of grown from there, and I was kind of the shipwreck nerd going into it, but Tanner's really embraced it and brought his um, kind of academic background to it, and it's been great. It's really bloomed into something fun. I'll just jump in to say, yeah, I was never really interested particularly in in shipwrecks um (laughs) historically for me but taylor had the idea to do this and sort of as soon as we started researching it and finding that you know all of these stories are tied into such a wider uh, range of things than just you know the mechanics of a shipwreck itself uh so getting you know we we obviously love to cover the the context and the the setup and the background of all these things and i think that's one of the nice things about our podcast is that there's a little bit of something for everyone. Uh, we we end up having to talk about a a wide array of different topics uh, beyond just ships themselves. So that's been really enjoyable. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and how did you guys know each other before you started the podcast? Um, I've known Tanner his whole life. Actually, we're we're brothers. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I think I've like never seen your last name, uh-huh. so I just like never put that yeah, together. So we, we've been, <laughs> oh, we've been stuck together for a while now, so yeah. Amazing. So it's the siblings episode. It, it is. It yeah. is the siblings episode. Oh my goodness, it's the spooky siblings episode. <laughs> yeah, we've we like I, I think like on two or three occasions on the podcast, it's just come up organically. And we've mentioned it, but you know, we we've gotten comments and feedback before, like, oh, they have such a good rapport, like they work re- really well together. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like that is the nice thing is like communication is never really an issue. You know, we're, we're always able to to uh, talk things through and, and we work really well together. Great. So now we can do something spooky. <laughs> uh, Paige, do you want to start us off? Because you know the drill. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can, though. I don't really have anything 
spooky other than since November, every single month, either Elliot or I have been sick with something. (laughs) And we got like thought we had gotten past it all. We got food poisoning like a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, maybe. No, it was just last week. We got food poisoning. Yeah, it was just last week. And like finally like started feeling better and getting it over it by like Wednesday or Thursday of this week. And then Friday into Saturday, he has now come down with some other, I don't know, cold something that's going on so like we're entering another sickness going into march so basically every month of my life i'm sick now so that's cool (laughs) (laughs) but that's all i have (laughs) what about you megan (laughs) okay my specific thing i have two things written down for this so first i was looking through uh some of your old episodes while i was looking up your uh Taylor and Tanner, your your podcast description to make sure I had it written down. And I noticed that the second episode that you guys ever did was about the SS Milwaukee, mm-hmm. which was like a train, ferry, what? train yeah. something mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that you traveled across Lake Michigan. And so I was like, well, that's just sort of a funny coincidence that you've done an episode on it. And we like literally just talked I about talked the about Lake Michigan the ferries that go across there. And like those ferries used to be train car ferries. So yeah, so a little, little spooky coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then my second thing is did either of you end up watching the movie in preparation for this, the Deepwater Horizon movie? I have seen it previously, but I I did not watch it like this week or anything. I watched it about five hours ago. (laughs) (laughs) You are fully prepared. (laughs) Paige, have you seen it? No, I have not. Mark Wahlberg and Gina Rodriguez? I'm sort of surprised I haven't, though. I sort of am too. It was pretty good. I I actually enjoyed it. I think in the message I had sent, I indicated that I thought it would be a bad movie and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Wait. Yeah. Yeah. I think I got a message where you were like, you sounded very skeptical Mm -hmm. about it. And I was like, um, I love that movie. So. (laughs) You said it's with Gina Rodriguez? Yeah. Yes. How have I not watched this? I love her. I know. Yeah. You can come to my house and watch it. I should have made you watch it last night while you were babysitting. Yeah. Damn it. Um, (laughs) I really like it. I like disaster movies a lot. And I thought that one was particularly good and was at least like geology adjacent. So I felt like, okay, I have a connection here. But now that I feel like I've done all the background in this, like they did a pretty good job capturing what went on, like on that day and what led up to this, like oversimplified to some extent in terms of, I don't know, making poor John Malkovich, like (laughs) a very uh, stereotypical evil corporate guy, but (laughs) yeah, overall they did well. (laughs) Yeah. I was, I was going to say like, in terms of like the, the level of detail, I really felt uh, watching it that if I hadn't done a bunch of reading about it beforehand, like I'd probably legitimately have to like stop and look stuff up because there was some stuff in there. I was like, ah, this is actually a decent amount of like detail about what's going on here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, We're going to get into some terminology, uh, maybe unfortunately for some (laughs) of you. Um, (laughs) The number of times (laughs) that I've had to look up uh, how a blowout Mm -hmm. preventer works, uh, as well as what the heck happens when you do a negative pressure test, Mm -hmm. is a lot. (laughs) And I'm still... 
I feel like I've got a better grasp on it now. I'm still not 100% sure. We're going to do our best. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of complicated engineering physics going on here that I am not built for. (laughs) Okay, so we are going to do big industrial disaster because I don't know, because I just think they're interesting and... And yeah, they end up just being sort of terrifying on like a broader <laughs> scale of life. Yeah, on like, a, on like an existential level, they're very spooky. <laughs> yeah, like what are we doing? <laughs> and I guess timely because it's felt like, oh, well, things are not going great with like a lot of uh, train derailments and various right. other things. So I guess we're going to talk about an older <laughs> one, an older thing now. So we'll start with a little bit of background and i'm gonna try not just just word vomit info dump on everybody but i make no promises because i do have a question before you launch into it yes do you want to hear our something spookies son of a bitch (laughs) i do i i also totally brain farted (laughs) listen (laughs) we care we promise no, I, I did that one time because we, we usually do like our media check in at the beginning. And one time we had a yeah. we had a guest and I just totally forgot it. And like, that's that's like one of the cool parts where it's like people get to share what they've been up to. And like, I totally just blew past it. Yep. Nope. I was ready to go. I was ready to go. All right. <laughs> We're going to get it together. OK, well, anyway, uh, who wants to start telling us something? Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead. And recently. Great. <laughs> I guess ours, it's been, uh, this is actually today, I suppose. It's been pretty windy here. And uh, I know I made reference to a large golden doodle that you may hear at some point in this recording. <laughs> and he will absolutely spook you when it's windy because he will hear something and just lose it. And it's always when you least expect mm. it. And he has a loud and boisterous bark. He's made me jump like three times <laughs> today just by barking and, and getting real upset at the wind. <laughs> <laughs> Paige could tell you something about loud dogs. Yeah. <laughs> we have a similar experience here every time it's windy or stormy or someone's walking or somebody's dog barks or yeah, you know, yeah. anything. He is a sweet boy, but he will bark. <laughs> <laughs> He's just letting you know what's up. Uh, okay, Tanner, how about you? Did anything spooky happen to you recently? Uh, for me, like I, I wish I'm kind of in that camp of like, I wish spooky things would happen to me, but also we live with three cats. So basically anything that happens can like very (laughs) quickly be ascribed to like, oh, it was probably them, you know, getting into (laughs) something. Um, we have, we have one cat. He's, he's a big chunky boy, uh, but he has a, he has a very like dainty meow. (laughs) And so if he's in the basement, he'll do his little, his little like, and it, it will sound like a child's (laughs) voice sometimes. Um, so that does that does freak me out, but very quickly I'm like, okay, that's just that's just Palouche, uh, who's you know lamenting existence. It's honestly <laughs> the best thing about owning animals is that anything that weird that happens, you're just like, eh, it was probably one of them. It's fine. It's probably not a demon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that should pretty much be like a a thing for if you think your house is haunted, like. Do you have a cat? <laughs> if you have multiple cats. Recently, Taylor, you had, what was it? Did you have a bird or a bat in your chimney or something that was making horrendous noises? Uh, it was two baby raccoons. And it sounded like, it <gasps> oh. sounded like there was a demon in the chimney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. 
<laughs> That's fine. Yeah. Um, great. Well, now we have not totally blown past <laughs> that. And you get into say something spooky. <laughs> okay. Great. So, Deepwater Horizon. Uh, we will start with some background on drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. And yeah, just a little bit about like how drilling platforms work and some specifics about this rig itself and the project that they were working on. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of factors here <laughs> going into this. So I was really surprised to learn that offshore drilling has been a thing since the 1890s, <laughs> which is absurd to me. Like that started in California. And I guess like I should clarify that by offshore drilling, they mean like this is in 14 feet of water, like right. off of a pier. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's not exactly like how we think of it today. Um, in the Gulf of Mexico, it started in 1938. And now we have rigs that are capable of drilling up to 250 miles offshore in water that is over 10,000 feet deep, and they can drill holes up to 28,000 feet deep, which is bananas. Absolutely. <laughs> that, that is insane. Yeah, that's just like mind-blowing engineering that goes into all of this. So, I mean, despite complicated feelings about <laughs> extracting oil <laughs> and environmental impacts and all that. It is some pretty amazing engineering that goes into this. And this figure is as of 2020, but the Gulf provides about 15% of U.S. oil needs. Uh, and obviously, all of the people drilling there are making a fuck ton of money. <laughs> <laughs> So that's something spooky right. about it. It's like, you guys are ruining all of our lives. Um, <laughs> all right. So the Deepwater Horizon rig uh, in particular was located about 41 miles off the coast of Louisiana in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, more specifically, it was in the Mississippi Canyon block at site 252 and was drilling in BP's Macondo Prospect oil fields. So if you go to this link that I just sent in the chat, the first photo that's on there wow. is the map of all the rigs located that are drilling in the Mississippi Canyon block. Oh, wow. That is a which, lot of yellow dots. Yeah. Which is whenever this map was, I guess if you add together the central and the western planning area is like going on 4,000 active platforms. Which is pretty crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah, I don't think I understood the full scale of, of how big the drilling operation was. Yeah, well, yeah, and that stretches out across like a huge distance of coastline as well. So, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so that's where it's located. And now we can talk a little bit about how drilling platforms work. I promise that we will do... Uh, I don't know which one of you sent the message about like geology and what was complicated there. <laughs> I didn't get as deep into it as I wanted, but we will talk about it later. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> Nobody's escaping this episode without some geology. <laughs> um, <laughs> probably a lot more like fluid dynamics than they'd appreciate, but that's fine. 
Uh, okay. So how oil drilling platforms work, like I said, they're pretty amazing in terms of how they're engineered and just all the technology that goes into drilling these super deep holes. Like 28,000 feet is almost the height of Mount Everest. That's crazy. Uh, the Deepwater Horizon was a floating semi-submersible drilling unit, a fifth generation ultra deep water dynamically positioned column stabilized drilling rig sounds very fancy but it's a very fancy way of saying this was a floating platform that has big pontoons located beneath the water to provide buoyancy so it's not supported by anything connected to the seabed uh, or like columns or anything and the columns refer to what's connected to the above water platform and dynamically positioned refers to the fact that it has a computer system that is using propellers and thrusters to keep it in the exact same location. Because obviously you have a lot of piping going down to the seabed and then a big hole and a lot more piping going down below that and you don't want your rig like drifting off and breaking off that connection because mm-hmm. that would uh probably very very <laughs> expensive and potentially disastrous and then we have to make a podcast about it that's that's the way that mm-hmm. that works right <laughs> yes <laughs> you have to make a podcast about it or an entire blockbuster <laughs> movie probably <laughs> it's uh it's funny with these semi-submersible rigs because we had to kind of get familiar with those for the ocean ranger episode yeah and at least for me I guess I had never really thought about oil rigs. I guess I kind of always assumed that they were just like drilled into the seafloor and then learning about Mm -hmm. this and like actually seeing one of these like from the bottom. I was like, wow, that's that's really fascinating with these these pontoons and and the stability that it adds to it. So, yeah, it's it's fun to talk about another one. Yeah. And I sort of I think I was thinking about this. As I was writing these notes, I was like, well, it's floating. So like how, like you wouldn't want it to have a ton of up and down motion either. And I was like, how does that work? Like if there are waves. So I, I think I did not confirm this, but here's what I know about oceanography. (laughs) (laughs) I would guess it's that the pontoons uh, that make up that lower hull and that are beneath the water are deep enough to be below the wave base, Mm -hmm. which is officially defined as half the wavelength which is the distance from trough to trough between waves, where the motion of the water at the surface for wave action would be negligible. So Mm -hmm. like basically the pontoons and the platform that they're supporting wouldn't be affected by up and down wave motion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we we compared it basically in our episode to the foundation of a house and how because it's Mm -hmm. deeper down, Mm -hmm. it holds it in place better and it doesn't it's not really affected by the the surface motion. Um, And reading about some of these rigs, uh, these semi-submersibles. I know in John Conrad's book, uh, Fire on the Horizon, he talks about some of these rigs, and I believe Deepwater Horizon maybe is one of them. How some of these things are stable enough where you know they've got they've got a pool table in the recreation area <laughs> on this thing that's you know floating in the middle of the ocean, which is just insane. The level of engineering that goes into that dynamic positioning to keep these things in exactly the same spot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can't move side to side, can't move up and down a whole bunch. And I just, I sort of like gave myself the willies just thinking about like what it must be like to be out on one of these during a big storm because Mm -hmm. you would just have like huge waves crashing up onto the 
the rig. And I know like in the North Sea, so not in the Gulf, like they've had like enormous rogue waves hit mm-hmm. drilling platforms and stuff. So not great. <laughs> right. I mean, with Ocean Ranger, that that wasn't even necessarily a drilling issue um, that led to that. It, it was purely the the action of the storm uh, that that, e- oh, that ended I didn't up, realize that one that ended up sinking because it. of a storm. Obviously exacerbated by other stuff happening on the rig, but um, yeah, that one uh, also. It's it's amazing that even these these massive machines that are engineered to be essentially unsinkable. And yeah, I guess the big spooky thing here is just the awesome power of the ocean. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but like also you know we're doing this in uh <laughs> we're like choosing whether it's like the offshore drilling that they're doing up in Alaska or that they're trying to do I don't know the stuff that's like in the North Sea and the Atlantic the stuff in the Gulf like basically all the locations where you have like the worst weather mm-hmm. <laughs> the biggest storms <laughs> rolling through it's like cool we're gonna install this thing that like could potentially be totally disastrous if it uh, gets, you know, sunk mm-hmm. by something. Uh, yes. And I was also once told by a geology professor that basically like avoid at all costs taking your geology degree and using it to become a mud logger on an oil <laughs> rig. <laughs> Some of it, like they're bringing up sections of the rock down below and logging in what they're seeing and, and making observer- observations about the geology as they go and like yeah if they're getting close to the formation that they're trying to reach and he basically framed it as like these are operating 24 7 seven days a week and like you're not you're a sort of like working in sort of miserable conditions (laughs) sometimes but also like they're gonna operate until the last possible second if like a hurricane rolls Mm -hmm. through or anything and then you're like taking a hell like the last helicopter into shore so (laughs) no thank you (laughs) um (laughs) all right so that's how our platform stays stable now we can get our feet wet pun intended (laughs) with some deep sea drilling terminology and some of these will seem sort of random until we like get into the actual disaster here but uh first thing i want to define is the drill string which is the drill bit so like you know the pointy thing that they're actually (laughs) using to drill the hole uh, onto which they are attaching many many lengths of 30 foot drill pipe and just adding more and more and more as the hole gets deeper and deeper and deeper and between the platform, so the drilling platform and the ocean floor, all of that piping is contained in what's called a marine riser, which is flexible tubing. So like suggesting there's probably a little bit of drift that's allowed <laughs> in our positioning. Like they have to, they can't make it totally rigid. Uh, the hole itself, you'll hear it referred to as a borehole. Uh, sometimes they differentiate from like what's in the casing they call the well bore versus the borehole is like the whole thing. Into that hole, as it's being drilled, a mixture of water, barite, which is a sulfate mineral, and chemicals, which is all mixed together called drilling mud, is circulated from the platform down into the hole and around the drill bit and <laughs> drill string to lubricate it, to seal the walls of the drill hole, and to control pressure. And as you will see, controlling pressure is like really everything when it comes to deep water horizon. <laughs> 
Drilling occurs in phases. In each phase, the width of our borehole gets narrower. In between each phase, the walls of our borehole get sealed with lengths of metal pipe that are cemented in place called casing. And you don't want your hole to cave in or leak. And as far as I understand... Mud is continuing to circulate both within and outside of that casing as, you know, again, as you're continuing to drill. When they finally hit the petroleum reservoir, the end of the drill casing is sealed off. Cement is pumped in to create a plug to seal off the area between the casing and the edges of the borehole. And... It may seem super weird that it gets sealed off because it's like, why did we drill all this way? And then we're just going to plug it up. <laughs> but oil reservoirs, petroleum reservoirs are under immense pressure. Like we're very deep under the ground. In this case, they drilled to a depth of 18,000 feet. So there's a lot more pressure um, of the fluids in that rock than obviously would be at the surface. Once you release that pressure, it wants to travel to lower pressure. It wants to travel up that borehole. Both these reservoirs contain both oil and natural gas. So what you really don't want is for that high pressurized and potentially explosive material rising up to the platform in an uncontrolled fashion. And the idea is that they control the flow later by reopening the hole using small explosives to create small perforations in the casing. So like they're just trying to let a little bit of the reservoir flow up into the drill huh. drill oh. pipe. I knew nothing about this, I like how this worked. <laughs> now you I didn't know. realize how much of engineering is really just like, well, we could blow it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we just want to blow it up at the right time and... The right amount. Just, just a, a little tiny bit. little explosion near this massive natural gas reservoir. Just a- <laughs> <laughs> That'll yeah, be fine. It's, it's fine. <laughs> uh, yes. That brings us to our last key piece of technology, which is the blowout prevention system. Because that uncontrolled flow of oil and gas up to the platform is called a blowout. <laughs> Yay. (laughs) Not to be confused with like the blowout that you get at a salon when they do your hair. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This system is meant to seal the well and reroute fluids to containment systems in the case that you get uncontrolled flow from the reservoir. So, yeah, we're going to talk a lot about blowout preventers. (laughs) Yeah, I thought of the blowout preventer as essentially just a big, like, clamp, I guess. I think so, yeah. There's basically just valves that can close. <laughs> and also, another interesting thing with that is, like, when I started reading about this, in in more than one source, it was one of the first pieces of information about the blowout preventer was that it's always pronounced B-O-P and never bop. And I was, I was just curious <laughs> as to, like, why this was something that, like, came up like unprompted in multiple places. I was like, is this, is this a big enough issue that it's one of the first things that they have to cover? (laughs) I don't know. I sort of wish it was a bop though. (laughs) It's probably like, Oh, I'm a big serious drilling platform guy. Like I'm not going to call it a bop. There are no bops out here. (laughs) There's only (laughs) BOPs. There'll be no bopping. 
too serious to call it a bop. <laughs> I've, yeah, I have no idea. But yes, that is an important note because I don't want to have to say blowout preventer 80 million times. So, <laughs> so you're just going to call it a bop. I might call it a bop the whole time, <laughs> but I'll try to remember to call it a BOP. All right. So now we can talk more specifically about Deepwater Horizon. It is, and this is the part where Paige is going to start to get angry as our resident environmental health and safety person. <laughs> <laughs> so the rig was owned and operated by a company called TransOcean and leased to BP. TransOcean is the world's largest offshore drilling contractor. That's an important point to make is that BP is contracting out the drilling of this well to multiple different companies. Mm -hmm. And so like, that's sort of one of the issues coming up is that like, there maybe was not the best communication or things were like too segmented. So not everybody had the information that they should have mm -hmm. when it comes to certain safety or tests that they should be doing. So overall, the rig had a really good safety record or Transocean had a really good safety record. Uh, it did seem like at the time, though, conditions were going downhill, which is like, I mean, I think they say they start to go downhill in like 2008. And it was like, well, everybody's conditions were going downhill in 2008, because that was the <laughs> start of the recession. So <laughs> everyone was probably starting to cut corners, uh, which I shouldn't laugh about. But anyway, uh, but from 2008 to February of 2010, which is when drilling at this location, MC252 began, TransOcean owned 42% of rigs. I don't know if it was just in the Gulf or like in general, I think just in the Gulf. But they were responsible for 73% of incidents. Hmm. Not great. Wow. <laughs> Additionally... Their drilling crews at the time ranked their job quality and overall satisfaction last and second to last, respectively, relative to other deep water drilling operations. Good. So, yes, you've got a lot of accidents happening and a lot of unsatisfied people working um, on your drilling rigs. That said, the Deepwater Horizon rig in particular had a pretty good safety record. Things that did get noted that I read about, it had been cited 18 times for pollution by the Coast Guard between 2000 and 2010, and it had some like typical incidents like fires that happened. But as far as I understand, that was like, those were normal things to happen for platforms. I was going to say, I would be sort of surprised if not every one of these was getting cited for pollution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Year over year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um something that came up uh, in some of the reading I was doing was just the massive amount of oil that spilled through just operational discharge. Uh, so mm -hmm. like these these tankers and things, even just when they're washing their tanks with seawater, the amount of oil that gets spilled in smaller increments, obviously, than these big spills, but pretty consistently. And it was, yeah, it was just kind of terrifying. Like, oh, this is just kind of something that always happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is just normal amount of oil spillage. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah, and the amounts like they talk about it's like, oh, it was a relatively small amount at, you know, five tons of oil. It's like, Jesus. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, so here's the part where I know Paige's brain exploded when she read these notes. Um, <laughs> for getting started at uh, MC252, BP filed a 52-page exploration and environmental impact plan with the Minerals Management Service, uh, which is part of the U.S. Department of the Interior. The plan, like the overall take-home of this plan in terms of like safety and environmental stuff was they were just like yeah an oil spill is unlikely to happen and if it does there will be people there to take care of it so there aren't going to be significant impacts like famous last words you guys (laughs) (laughs) because of this the department of interior didn't require bp to do a detailed environmental impact study that sounds like a bad plan Not great. Nor do they have to file a detailed blowout plan. And I just read this and I was like, good God, what were you guys doing? Okay. (laughs) So I just wonder, like, how frequently are they not requiring these then? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. And I'm not clear that I want to know the answer to that question. Also, like... (laughs) BP filed a 52-page exploration and environmental impact plan, but they weren't required to do a detailed environmental impact plan. Oh. I don't know, man. What? Like, how many pages is that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was probably like 51 pages were like, here's where the oil is, and here's why we did that. (laughs) And one page was like, this is fine, you guys. We're not going to... It it really is crazy in these kind of (laughs) stories, and we reread them so often that there's all these accidents that happen, and they're never these companies don't have a safety plan or an environmental reaction plan, and it's just like, well, what did you think? Like, just nothing bad ever happens. It it is interesting. (laughs) It's just so common. Yeah, you would think at a certain point that someone would uh, be the guys. Maybe we should prepare for like just in case. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy to me that they claimed that an oil spill was unlikely like the work you're doing makes it likely mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you mean it's unlikely <laughs> a b like there wouldn't be significant impacts if it did happen yeah uh, i think they just they just <laughs> felt like yeah they would be able to stop it fast enough and that like the blowout preventer and all that was a fool yeah back thing. to like our kind of our area here it's like not practicing lifeboat drills or something because like it's unlikely the ship's gonna sink but what if it does like, what if it does? <laughs> right. Right. <Yeah. laughs> Paige is like, this is what I do <laughs> for a living. I job. make people think about this even <laughs> if they don't want to. <laughs> exactly. Here's the thing, though. Like, I, well, I'm probably the exception because it's like, I want people to think about this. I was like, please overthink the ventilation in my lab. Right. Like, right. <laughs> overthink what I'm getting exposed to. Like, that's great. Slow me down. I'm fine with that. <laughs> You're a dream. This is, why, <laughs> this is why I work for the state government and not <laughs> in a corporate setting. Uh, <laughs> okay. 
But yeah, I guess that brings us to a key thing to remember is like, ultimately, these companies are, well, A, like lobbying the government to have the least amount of oversight that they can possibly Not oil have. companies. Uh, <laughs> no, definitely not. Uh, but also trying to spend the least amount of money possible to extract these resources. And yeah, I mean, people are going to cut corners. That's that's what they want to do. That's why you hire people like Paige to be like, no, you fucking <laughs> assholes, you can't do this. <laughs> and luckily, Paige is mean enough that she get people to listen. She might be small, but she's scary when she gets mad. Um, <laughs> my something spooky. Um, <laughs> Okay, so at this location where they are planning to drill for the ooh, Macondo project, I've already lost the name of it, even though I read yeah, it. The, the Macondo Prospect. The Macondo Prospect. That's right. These are all prospects, which sounds very oil old timey. <laughs> uh, yes. So water at this location is about 5,000 feet deep, and the plan was to drill down to a depth of 5,600 meters below sea level. Uh, which is a total of 18,360 feet, which when you count for the water depth was a drill hole of about 13,300 feet, which is like not that much for what these rigs are capable of doing, Mm -hmm. like well within the maximum water depth, um, well within the drill hole depth uh, for this type of platform. Deepwater Horizon had like drilled much deeper than this in the past. So, yeah. going in this like shouldn't have been a big deal but like really when you look at all the logistics of like how these things work it's like it's all a big deal everything is complicated (laughs) yeah if i remember correctly i think not not too long before this deepwater horizon had like drilled the deepest drill hole ever drilled yes yeah and it's funny because i think one of the the numbers i quoted earlier was drill holes that were twenty eight thousand feet but then I read later that Deepwater Horizon had set a record of like 35,000 mm-hmm. feet. And I don't know if that was like water column plus drill hole or if it was like, you know, I don't know. But either way, yeah, it had set a record. Mm-hmm. So they were feeling pretty good about it. <laughs> so th- this type of drilling platform, the these semi-submersible ones, they were using this to make an exploratory well. So the idea is that They've done all these studies beforehand. They are pretty sure that there's an oil reservoir down there. And now they're going to drill this big, deep hole, reach it. But then they're going to set up this cap and seal it off until they can uncap it later and set up a subsea production system to like actually collect what they've drilled into. So this was not like the final solution. Uh, Yes. And that is the point we are at which is the final ceiling of this before Deepwater Horizon goes off to do something else when the accident takes place, like literally that day. (laughs) Okay, we've reached the scary explosion time. (laughs) We're very excited. We're not, 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 I I shouldn't say excited. Um, We're, it's fine. (laughs) I have a hard time. I was like, I get excited when it's geology themed. This is really when the Mark Wahlberg documentary starts, correct? Yes. Yeah. Now we are, now we are at uh, Mark Wahlberg movie time, (laughs) which like I said, 
I like that movie. And the whole time I was taking notes on this, I was like, I got to watch that again. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So April 20th, 2010, coming back to something spooky. I think my real something spooky might be that this was 13 years ago. (laughs) Right? Yeah. (laughs) And like also realizing that this was like, I was finishing up my first year of grad school at the time. And I was like, oh my God, I'm old now. Like, cause this feels like yesterday. Yeah. I remember, I remember watching this in my freshman year dorm with my roommate, watching, watching the, uh, this happen on the news. And that made me feel oh. pretty old. I think my something spooky yeah. is that I was getting ready to graduate business school at this point, And I was starting to look for a job. Oh. And 2010 was not a great time to be doing that. <laughs> And now you're a podcast. And now I podcast. Guys, I was in high school. <laughs> God damn it, Paige. God damn it. <laughs> um, yeah, but I was in grad school, okay? <laughs> like my freshman year disaster uh, of college was Hurricane Katrina, which is funny, like both Gulf of Mexico oh. events. <laughs> Notable disasters that define my life welcome to being a millennial (laughs) um (laughs) okay so april 20th 2010 great this was the day the deepwater horizon crew was supposed to finalize the sealing of the drill hole disconnect and move the platform off site and i read that it was like it's very expensive like i talked about the technology and how sophisticated all of it is to drill these holes and keep these platforms in place like it costs to use a rig like that it was costing like a million dollars a day so it's absurdly expensive and i was like you know that's probably another reason i'm super glad that i didn't go into like production oil geology like go the (laughs) the oil route (laughs) because like i don't want to guess wrong and be like hey drill this super expensive hole and like find nothing down there. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that was um something on the the note of like how much these things cost to operate um yeah just seeing at the beginning like just the bare the lease cost being like three hundred fifty thousand dollars a day and then factoring in the fact that like you know these things when they're in transit obviously that's not making any money for the company so Oh, for, yeah. for every day that, you know, say that they add something to their trip or they, they have to, you know, stop drilling for any reason. It's like that's that's millions of dollars every day that's not being made. <laughs> uh, yeah. it's, it's just insane yeah. amounts of money, which I guess money seems to be fake uh, just with when you're throwing around numbers in the billions. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a- yeah. <laughs> yeah, considering uh, BP. Uh, I think they made like $22 billion last year or something. So it's like, well, chump change, I guess. They're doing okay. I mean, yeah, but like you still have to imagine that the people doing those jobs are feeling the pressure of how. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I work in logistics now and it's the constant of like, why line not go up? Make line go up. Well, yeah. And like the pressure, like you said, on, you know, if you. Uh, you press this button on the on on the the drilling platform at the you know the wrong split second, and you've just you've just wasted you know a million dollars of BP's money. So yeah, I'm I'm sure the, yeah. the pressure there is is pretty immense. Yeah, yeah, make it easy to make mistakes. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> a lot of pressure. Everybody trying to go as fast as possible. People aren't feeling great. It's all adding up, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me happy to be an English teacher, where like. 
if I do something wrong, then it's like my student doesn't know the difference between the simple present and the present progressive, and we can fix it. <laughs> that's like the worst thing yeah. I can do at my job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thing about my job, too, is like, yeah, I work with some pretty sophisticated and expensive instrumentation, but it's like, nobody's going to die <laughs> if I mess up. <laughs> like, I mean, somebody, I guess I could technically like kill myself, but like, <laughs> I'd have to try really hard to do that. So, <laughs> so it's okay. <laughs> uh, I think that it's a little bit of a spooky coincidence that on the day of the accident, BP and Transocean managers were on site. And I assumed watching the movie that this was sort of like a made up detail. It was not. <laughs> were on site to celebrate the rig operating for seven years without a lost time and accident. <laughs> okay. And I have a lot of thoughts about this. <laughs> but I'm not going to talk a whole lot about it. I just... I mean, it is a spooky coincidence that it was the same yeah. day. Like, I'll definitely, yeah. I definitely agree with that. But like, you hear all the time with these big disasters that occur, these big accidents that, oh, it was, you know, this company had just celebrated all time low injury rates. And like, oh. it happens, you hear these stories all the time. And like, just generally, like the safety field has sort of tried to stop focusing all of the attention on lost time accidents or big injury rates but there are like plenty of places who have low and accident rates because like people don't want to report because mm -hmm. you don't want to be the person who had to report the accident that meant you didn't get the pizza party after seven years <laughs> so it's like <laughs> oh. so it makes me wonder like okay great seven years without lost time accident but what things were going on behind the scenes that people weren't reporting that like eventually is going to result in an accident because mm -hmm. we weren't talking about it. So. Yeah. Or like how many close calls were there? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's like a running theme on our show is that, you know, even when, even when everyone's taking steps to do everything right and do everything by the book and follow safety guidelines, things still happen. So yeah, yeah the idea of going that long and nothing has happened. It's like something is being, you know, not even to say, you know, a, a cover up, quote unquote, but things are going unreported or things are not being sure. given the focus that that they probably should. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And even the idea of reporting close calls and things like that. Um, we deal with safety a lot in my job. and It's just so important as a learning lesson and a reminder for people when you have those close calls yeah. and using those as an education point. Um, when those, you know, Absolutely. when you're not reporting those things, you're losing an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, and I also just wonder if people had just gotten like sort of complacent about safety oh, stuff. Yeah. Cause they're like, nothing has happened. Right. Nothing's so, like, gone on in seven This years. is probably we'll fine, fine <laughs> to just keep doing what we're doing when like really they've just been getting lucky <laughs> the whole time. Okay. But. Yeah, so we're we're very happy uh, going into this day. No last time accidents. Uh, but the project was obviously very expensive, like we talked about, and was running about five weeks behind schedule. So that's, I don't know, however many millions of dollars. I think the specific number of days was like, I don't know if it was five weeks, because I feel like I also saw figures of like 40-something days. So and if it's a million dollars a day, that's like $40 million <laughs> spent extra I feel like this. they referenced like 42 or 43 days in the movie it was something yeah like that. and I was trying to I was doing math and then I was like no five yeah <laughs> that's about right five times seven is like 35 so six weeks behind 
whatever. It's fine. <laughs> Either way, probably like $40 million uh, over budget at this point. And they had also had problems along the way. So we'll do a little geology aside now. I know you guys are super excited. But people had expressed from an engineering standpoint potential problems with the integrity of the casings, uh, which, as you'll remember, is what's being used to line this drill hole as you are as you're drilling deeper and deeper uh, and the type and the amount of cement that was used for the eventual cap that they placed on it and that they had like finished placing at like 1240 a.m. of this day. <laughs> but there had been a lot of problems along the way. The drill pipe was getting stuck. They had drilling mud that was leaking into cracks in the rock. So like that suggests that there were issues with like the strength of the surrounding rock itself that they were drilling into. Um, they had been getting so-called kicks. It's called a kick, I guess, when gas enters or gas or hydrocarbons enter the well from the formation throughout this. So this is basically the like tricky geology <laughs> that's going on and that they have had to compensate for as they went like they're having to like seal up these cracks as they go so they can continue to drill deeper and it's like you don't want to go so deep trying to get this formation in weak rock that like eventually the rock just sort of collapses and then you've got everything spilling upwards mm -hmm. so not great um ahead of time and like they maybe didn't they, they're having to like change their plan as they go to compensate for this okay so, chronology of the accident. That morning, on April 20th, to save money, BP chose not to do a cement bond log, which I have no idea what that is, and I didn't bother to Google it, so kudos to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but this is uh, basically uh, something that was meant to ensure that the final cement seal on the reservoir was sufficient. Because again... We're like plugging up the end of that drill pipe and we're pumping a bunch of cement down into the bottom of it because you don't want everything that is super pressurized down in that reservoir to start coming up in an uncontrolled matter. Then later that day, between 5 and 7 p.m., they conduct what is called a negative pressure test. And this is the thing that for seven years now, because 2016 is when the movie came out, <laughs> That's blown my mind. We're going to do our best here. During this test, uh, what's happening is they are reducing the hydrostatic pressure within the casing. So within the drill pipe. So remember, we've got the drill pipe, which is within the borehole. And you've got mud being pumped through all of this down to the bottom of the well. So we reduce the pressure in the drill pipe and seal it off and check for pressure spikes after the fact. And if you're seeing spikes in pressure after you've reduced that pressure and you've sealed it, that would suggest that there are leaks in the casing. So like stuff is making its way from outside and in this case from the reservoir through that cement seal into the bottom of your borehole. So you have hydrocarbons making their way up there. And again, I will preface this with like, I don't have a perfect understanding with like exactly the like engineering into how they design this test. But a key aspect is they are replacing the drilling mud that's within the casing within the drill pipe with seawater. 
And seawater is less dense than mud, so you're creating a lower pressure environment than what's around it. And everything wants to flow from high to low. Just like in nature, we go from higher energy to lower energy. We seal off the drill pipe using the blowout preventer, the bop, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The pressure within the drill pipe is then bled off at the rig. And then you basically wait to see if that pressure starts to increase on its own after the fact. And again, that indicates like you're adding something to this. We're starting to pressurize it. Something is leaking in. So. Here are the results of this test. It produced, I don't know, weird results, anomalous results. To me, that sort of just means like it failed for the main drill pipe itself. But they decide maybe there's something weird going on here. We're going to repeat the test for the choke and kill lines. So here's where we find out there are actually three lines that are connected between the blow-up preventer and the rig, the drill pipe, the choke, and the kill lines. And, like, they're just all used in tandem to, like, pump different fluids up and down from the rig and control pressure and all that. So the choke and the kill line produce normal results. And that pretty much gets misinterpreted. They chalk it up to... They chalk up the failure in the main drill pipe to something called a bladder effect and decide... Everything must be fine because the kill line was okay and they decide to like keep going and continue with this like breaking off Mm -hmm. procedure from the well. Um, I had also read that there were earlier problems suggesting that there were problems or leaks with the blowout preventer. So like it's potentially just not working the way that it should Mm -hmm. In the first place. And we have John Malkovich to blame for them for them assuming (laughs) this bladder effect. Yes, yes, I know. I like specifically remember the way that he says in his like goofy Cajun accent that he has. Yeah, he has a yeah. yeah. (laughs) But yeah, they pretty much just like blame it all on John Malkovich in that movie, and it's like, well, it's a little more complicated (laughs) than that. But you know, it's fine. We got to have the evil corporate man. So we do this test. We decide "Eh, it sort of failed, but the other things passed, so this is successful. (laughs) So it's fine. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) again famous last words around 8 p.m the drilling crew then begins to remove the drilling mud from the borehole so from our our well that we've drilled all the way down 18,000 feet by displacing it with seawater because again like you don't want to leave a bunch of mud behind to like leak into the ocean that's not great either so they have to remove that and store it in tanks and take it away importantly seawater is less dense than drill mud So when you replace the drilling mud, you are reducing the downward force on that cement plug at the bottom. Because this whole time, part of the function of the drilling mud is to like stabilize the borehole and keep everything from collapsing in on itself. And they've like hopefully used enough cement and proper casing to make sure that it stays that way and doesn't collapse or doesn't have a blowout after they remove that drill mud. So as that mud is replaced, what's actually going on is that we are getting more and more natural gas that's mixing in with the fluid in the borehole. And they start to see weird readouts as they are circulating the drilling fluid. So they're getting big spikes in the volume of drilling mud within the storage tanks on the rig, which is like basically meaning like there are surges of gas entering the the borehole and being brought to the surface as like more and more of this drilling mud is replaced with seawater. 
not great. <laughs> I think they like stop and try to evaluate this a couple times, but like ultimately keep going. Then at 9.47 p.m., there is a huge increase in pressure within the standpipe, which is the pipe the mud is traveling through, and the mud storage tanks. And shortly after that, you start to get water and mud like forcefully traveling up onto the platform. The blowout has started. Within minutes, the seals on the bottom of the borehole fail as methane gas explodes upwards into the borehole and eventually up through the floor of the Deepwater Horizon rig. Survivors report seeing the lights flicker and feeling two large thuds that occurred as the gas rose up and then exploded at the surface. And like, I mean, exploded, (laughs) like it ignited (laughs) in an enormous explosion. They... I think don't know for sure, but they they think there were attempts to activate the seals on the blowout preventer. But by the time that was attempted and due to the fact that it was like potentially already compromised anyway, like things were basically in motion and gas had made it above the blowout preventer. And this was like our unstoppable force at this point. Um, And then additional options that they had to close the drill pipe or just completely sever the connection to the rig failed because I think like by the time the explosion happened, like they just lost control of too many systems to activate these safety measures. So yeah, it's uh, got very scary, very fast. (laughs) 11 platform workers were killed during the incident. And I think like probably they were, they were killed instantly. So that, is I guess at least a relief here because they probably didn't even really have time to like realize what was going on. Um, the remainder of the crew and others that were on board, which is a total of 115 people evacuated on lifeboats. And they had just minutes to do this before the rig was totally engulfed in flames. By the morning of April 22nd, the rig sank and oil and gas was left spilling into the Gulf of Mexico. Yay. <laughs> things are going super great (laughs) yeah and i just like i yeah i have distinct memories of seeing the footage of the explosion and the fire after the fact and yeah i mean it was super intense and like it's also one of those things that i felt like it went on forever like it felt like a month or two later we were still seeing the same pictures every day Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that brings us to uh, the aftermath. <laughs> so this is ultimately the largest accidental marine oil spill in the world and the largest environmental disaster in the history of the United States. Um, up to 60,000 barrels per day for a total of 5 million barrels or 200 million gallons of oil flowed into the Gulf in the 87 days it took them to stop it. And that's what I remember is like they had like multiple attempts and multiple ways they tried to stop the flow and they just like couldn't for Mm -hmm. over three months or almost three months. It contaminated up to 68,000 square miles and a thousand miles of coastline in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm. (laughs) So this is where I get to like the existential dread (laughs) part of all of this. Yeah. And I guess you can speak a little bit more to the legal stuff that happened after the fact. 
But this has obviously been, you know, a super huge and lengthy recovery process from this incident. I had read that BP alone paid $65 billion in fines, compensation, cleanup, and legal costs. So that's a lot of money. But again, <laughs> like when you're making $22 billion a year, like, I guess you can afford it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was hoping you could speak a little bit more to the legal stuff because I started to dive into it some and I know some of the charges like that they they got brought up on for like Clean Water Act stuff and everything. But like they also tried to get like manslaughter charges and stuff. But I right. think ultimately nobody like nobody went to jail or anything. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So like I, I know that there were some there were manslaughter charges brought to the two uh, against two of the BP executives. And those ultimately didn't come to anything. Um, and yeah. like you said, with the the money side of things where, you know, even uh, for a company like BP that's paying out millions or billions of dollars, it, it's like even that is just kind of a, a drop in the ocean for a company of that size. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I was I was reading about I, I was reading from an article by Madeline Burke uh, called Duck and Cover the Gross Attempts of Limiting Liability in the Titanic, Deepwater Horizon and Table Rock Lake Accidents. Um, oh, good. And that it focuses on the Limitation of Liability Act. Uh, which in its original form is from 1851, um, oh, but is still uh, in some cases like applicable. So the idea here is that owners and operators being limited in what they are basically on the hook for, uh, if they can prove that they had no knowledge um, of, of something uh -huh. being done incorrectly. I don't know. It's been updated and, and amended uh, several times. Uh, it was updated once in the 30s, I think again in the 60s, specifically with the Deepwater Horizon. So Transocean filed a petition to invoke the uh, this act to limit their liability. The Eastern District of Louisiana found that, quote, the drill crew's failure to divert flow overboard constituted approximate cause of the explosion, fire, and oil spill that was within Transocean's privity and knowledge. Uh, to the extent ah. this failure was negligence, Transocean was aware that its crews lacked training about the proper use of diverters, and therefore, this negligence was within Transocean's privity and knowledge. A long way to go just to say that uh, some of the things we talked about, knowing that the rig was you know, not operating at its, at its top capacity, knowing that a lot of things needed to be fixed and updated, fell within that of saying that, no, you, you can't claim negligence here. You knew what you were doing. And so that's why they end up having to pay out a lot of the money that they, they do end up paying. And then, yeah. and then this also gets into the complicated nature of the relationship between the operation of the rig. So you've got Transocean and you've got BP. And like you've referred to before, there's a lot of sort of gray areas on who's responsible for what, who's making which decisions. Um, mm -hmm. You've got this very confusing and conflicting command structure. Uh, we talked about similar things with Ocean Ranger, where you've got people who are responsible for the physical drilling itself. You've got people who are responsible for the rig. You've got changes in command structure based on whether the rig is in motion or not, you know, whether it's in transit or not, uh, depending on who who has the ultimate say for these things. And then, of course, you've got the, I guess you could call it the meddling from corporate. You've got the BP executives there who obviously have some conflicting uh, desires for what they want the rig to do because they're much more concerned with their spreadsheets and their bottom line, whereas the, the drilling team might be slightly more concerned with, you know, making sure this thing doesn't explode. 
Yeah. Yeah. So that was that was a lot of the <laughs> the reading I did was about sort of the legal precedence for this of, of mm-hmm. uh, making sure that people have to pay at least a little bit of compensation uh, from a, a personal injury standpoint. Yeah, I think it's in, it's interesting in these two that a lot of these laws are really old. Uh, we, we're mm-hmm. seeing that also with a lot of the railroad laws, like with what went on in East <laughs> Palestine. Like a lot of these laws are from like the 1850s and 60s, and they, they just yeah. aren't updated for a modern world. And the dollar amounts are just not even in the right ballpark. And kind of like what we talked about with trying to have like manslaughter charges against executives or something. It's just so rare that those things stick in a transportation setting. Yeah. And that really like civil liability is about all that you have in a lot of these cases. Yeah. Well, and you've got, you know, companies with like endless pools of money (laughs) to fight legal charges. So (laughs) at a certain point, yeah, it's just a cost of doing business to a lot of these companies. And to go back to, uh, I guess what Tanner was speaking about a little bit with like Transocean's uh, liability. I didn't, uh, I guess, get into too many of those details. But yeah, there was like, I think a similar incident that happened on a rig that they operated f- like four months before this. And there was some suggestion that they didn't pass on like the information that mm-hmm. this drilling crew could have used <laughs> to uh, prevent what had happened at Deepwater Horizon. Um, and you mentioned the like, yeah, directing flow off of the rig so like i think basically just trying to divert the flow from the blowout off the rig so that way it didn't like explode (laughs) the rig itself or like blast up through the center so yeah people uh didn't really know what to do but also like it happened very fast (laughs) on the note of uh communicating information and and kind of learning from incidents that have happened before there was an article by stephen Mm -hmm. haycox called fetched up unlearned lessons from the Exxon Valdez. And it just kind of drew a lot of parallels between oil accidents that used to happen and oil oil accidents that still happen because these these lessons Mm -hmm. aren't being internalized and acted on. In that one, he he kind of focused on the reliance on the technology of people saying, well, we have this technology, we have this blowout preventer, we have all these things, so we don't really need to be as careful as we used to. Um, And how that's that's a recurring issue, you know, through throughout the decades, it's always this reliance on as we as we get better technology, it sort of makes people a bit more complacent. And it leads to things like the largest yeah. oil spill in history. Yeah, that's that's never been new new technology to like prevent terrible things from happening <laughs> has never been never been a factor in any super famous uh, shipwrecks. <laughs> yeah, I think you see that more and more um, <laughs> in the modern world, that reliance on technology. Uh, and the ideas of like yeah. just-in-time logistics and all of the things that that entails, that you're operating everything to the max. And the moment something in that chain yeah. doesn't work properly, the entire chain can fall apart. And you see that in mm-hmm. stories like this where you know it's something that shouldn't have been a major issue and it's not handled properly and suddenly you have a tragic story unfolding. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think about these things a lot when I – because I'm a chicken about um, flying <laughs> – <laughs> so I think about a lot of the times like, oh, these planes these days, like just fly themselves. And it's like, okay, but you do know how to fly them like <laughs> just in case they don't, right? <laughs> I think there have been like a couple documentaries about like, I don't know how poorly made some of the Boeing stuff is or anything. It's like, I can't because I oh, won't yeah. get in a plane don't. ever again. <laughs> I watched that Boeing documentary and like every time I book flights now, I purposely try to book with Airbus. Like I don't. 
I don't book with Boeing unless I absolutely have Yeah, the entire 737 MAX story is absolutely insane. It's yeah, and it I mean honestly, like it's not much different from this one. <laughs> you know? I mean, like obviously tell me these the processes are very different, but like in terms of like, you know, things that people sort of knew were going wrong or like they weren't talking about and just like generally, you know, people not being happy with their jobs and, and quality and safety no longer being a priority, like it very easily slips into something like this. So Yeah. <laughs> but it's fine I can't, think, I can't think about don't think yeah, about it sure it's it is fine. sure it is just i can't i can't <laughs> anyway <laughs> me being afraid of flying besides the point um i guess one good thing that did come out of this and there's probably you know other examples of this but one in particular because that i felt like i had to mention because it took the time to understand negative pressure tests better um but they are now required which like they weren't required before. That's that what I was going to ask. <laughs> um, but they also must be reported to the U.S. Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement and like basically to open up a dialogue if they notice any inconsistencies or weird things to like make sure that, hey, you're going to check on this, right? <laughs> so, yeah, BP oil spill is a, is a big one. <laughs> it left its mark. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, I, I was going to connect back to one thing that Taylor said. It's from that same article of the paralleling the Valdez and the Deepwater Horizon. Mm-hmm. It talks about uh, after the Exxon Valdez spill. For three days, the seas were mostly calm, yet almost no oil was corralled or collected. The, uh, a storm then took it out of everyone's reach. So there was no coherent plan in place. Uh, like we were saying, if something goes wrong, of course, you're planning for mm-hmm. nothing to go wrong. But if something goes wrong, what are you going to do about it? Um and that was one of those potential lessons that went unlearned of, of having this action plan in place. And with Deepwater Horizon, when that spill occurred, commissioners found that BP had, quote, no available tested technique to stop a deepwater blowout other than the lengthy <laughs> process of drilling a relief well, um, which, you know, can take like a month or more, I believe. Yeah. In this case, like, I think it was officially that like 87 mm-hmm. day mark when they were able to like drill into the side and like start to div- divert the flow and, and stop it up. Yeah. So to Ooh. to bet your whole your whole operation on this one thing going right in every capacity is uh, I, I don't think impressive is the word, but it's uh, it's it's mind blowing. It really is yeah. amazing yeah. Um, how little sometimes we learn from some of these disasters and stuff. But I guess going back to the airline industry a little bit, one of the things that is so amazing is how well that industry overall does learn from incidents, especially in the United States and Europe, that with every incident, major incident that happens, it becomes so much safer to fly. And that, yeah. you know, a plane crash yeah. in the United States today would be a really, you know, just notable event because it just doesn't happen. And it is mm-hmm. impressive that that industry has embraced safety overall and, and adapted to yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And there have been like some pretty rough ones that uh, like rough plane crashes that have happened where like very few people have died or like nobody has died, which is pretty amazing Um, in recent years. But I think it's also just like probably that's the difference between like a passenger driven mm-hmm. industry <laughs> like if everybody's fucking terrified of your product like nobody's gonna (laughs) give you money to to use it but like this is like corporate industrial setting so everybody needs gas under three dollars right 
Right. The bread and butter of like, whether it's mining or drilling or whatever, like it's, it's been an unsafe thing for decades and decades and decades. Yeah. So I guess unless anybody else has thoughts, I wanted to uh, leave people with a couple quotes that I found that I liked. And these were specifically from a comment section of an sort of summary of the incident that happened. So one of them was from somebody who I think had worked in the oil industry. But uh, he said, this proves once again, the old industry adage I was weaned on cut corners all you want, but never downhole. (laughs) (laughs) So that definitely applies here. But also a quote from Uh, Mike Williams, who I think is the character that Mark Wahlberg Mm -hmm. plays. So he was interviewed by 60 Minutes and said, men lost their lives. I don't know how how else to say it. All the things they told us could never happen, happened. So nobody was prepared for this. So that's the lesson here. We need more people like Paige (laughs) to push us around. (laughs) Okay, before we sign off here, Taylor and Tanner, do you guys want to just take one more chance to remind people where they can find your podcast, find you guys, Twitter handles, whatever you want to share? Uh, Sure. We are Beyond the Breakers, podcast about shipwrecks, loss, lessons learned from maritime disasters. Uh, We're on Twitter at beyond underscore breakers. And we are on Instagram at beyond the breakers podcast. Uh, You can send us an email. That's uh, we hear it from a lot of people that way at uh, beyond the breakers pod at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Patreon. You can search for us there. Uh, the podcast is available all the places you'd normally find a podcast, uh, you know, Apple, Spotify, all of those um, on Patreon. We do some monthly bonus episodes. Uh, if you want a little bit more on those, we tend to focus. Uh, we branch out a little bit from straight disasters and we talk about some other maritime related things it might be folklore it might be ghost stories it might be watching a movie uh we just watched the enemy below uh a submarine flick from 1957 so yeah we uh we try to take a, a relatively serious subject and present it in a way that's both respectful but not too bleak um <laughs> <laughs> I relate to that. <laughs> trying to, you know, take uh, take some positives from it. You know, like Taylor was just saying, you know, lessons learned. That's that's part of the podcast uh, pitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what are we getting out of these things? Uh, we try not to fall too far into like the true crime rabbit hole of, of being hung up on on the gruesomeness of, of some of these things. Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah, uh, please, please, please uh, check us out. Yeah. Uh, and importantly, I think I. I had a small role in pushing you guys to do that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because originally we had, we were going to avoid that. We had said, nah, we, we're not going to touch we, that. We one. said no Titanic and no Edmund Fitzgerald, but we, we broke one of yeah. those rules. We will not be pushed into doing the Titanic. <laughs> uh, listen, I will fight for a Titanic episode <laughs> until I die. <laughs> I will add in terms of specific episodes, since we talked a little bit about safety protocols. Um, yeah. I, I will recommend... Uh, one of our more out of the box episodes uh, here, and that is, I think it's episode 83. Uh, that was about a vessel called the Karina Sea. One of the few episodes we've done where a vessel was not even underway, uh, and we're talking about it. Uh, <laughs> that that one actually involves a crushing incident uh, with a crane. Oh no! So yeah, if if oh, the no. if the safety incidents are more of of your cup of tea. Definitely check out episode 83 on the Karina Sea. That was a lot of rhymes there I didn't intend to do. It was Um, good. I liked it. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, now I have to go listen. I was just talking about crane safety with my husband mm-hmm. before I got on here because that's what I talk about in my free time. <laughs> you are such a nerd. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, first I want to say like, First of all, thank you guys for joining us, but also thank you for letting me join you (laughs) (laughs) because I had nothing prepared. So I appreciate you guys letting me hang out. Uh, Absolutely. Thanks for having us on. It was great. It's great to have a chance to to talk about uh, shipwrecks and stuff. Yeah, hopefully it wasn't too much like just me info dumping because I did get a little excited about the details. But <laughs> it's cool to uh, it, it's kind of cool. One of those like podcasting experiences that you know we've had is that you know you listen to a podcast like for a long time and you 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 hear people's voices and then like one day you're talking to them on, on their podcast. Oh yeah, so like it's it's a very cool experience <laughs> again. So yes, thank you for having us on here. Yeah, yeah, it becomes like a funny thing where it's like, I feel like I know you, but like... <laughs> but I've never actually spoken to you. All righty. Well, that wraps up our episode on Deepwater Horizon. Megan and I will be back next episode for a discussion on the Mandela Effect. If you liked this episode, hit subscribe and share with a friend. Check the show notes for links to all of our social media accounts, our Discord server, and Patreon. If you have any questions about previous topics or ideas for future episodes, email us at SpookySciencesisters at gmail.com. As always, thank you for listening and stay spooky. Spooky Science Sisters is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information or to check out other shows, please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Slaycation.